Amen. Well, we are in the final chapter of the book of Jonah, part four in a four-part series. So I'm trying to land the plane this morning in Jonah chapter four, but if you have read Jonah chapter four, you know this is a weird chapter. This is a weird ending. It's very bizarre. It doesn't end the way that we want it to or the way we think it's going to. And I've got a lot to say about that, which is kind of wild because Jonah is a really short book. It's really simple. You can read the whole book in like 15 or 20 minutes. The biggest chapter is only 17 verses. Chapter 4 is only 11. So it's not a hard read, but there's so much there. It's wild that I can come up with two hours worth of stuff to say over a book that takes 15 minutes to read, you know. And it's really complex. There's a lot I don't understand because of the original language. There's a lot of poetry. There's a lot of humor. But I do know that the main theme all throughout the book of Jonah, and that is certainly true today, is that we run from God and God chases us. That's the main theme of the book from the very beginning all the way through what we're going to cover today. And in chapter 1, we see the story opening by God trying to send his prophet Jonah to Nineveh. And we assume it is to warn the Ninevites that God's going to strike them dead if they don't make some changes, and he's supposed to tell them about their coming destruction. But Jonah doesn't really want to do that. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. We're not really sure why in the first chapter. We'll find out today. But Jonah runs in the opposite direction. But God chases Jonah through a storm to get his attention, and we find Jonah running from the God of the sea on a boat, which is pretty dumb. And he's put the sailors' lives in danger, and they're on this storm, and the, the sailors are all freaking out, but he's asleep downstairs. The sailors have to wake him up. He admits who he is, who his God is. All of this stuff is his fault. The storm's his fault, and if they'll just throw him into the sea, the storm will calm down. They'll get out of it alive. They don't really want to do that, but after some debate, they do throw him overboard, and lo and behold, the storm calms, and the sailors become believers. But Jonah, at the end of chapter 1, is out there, I don't know, doggy paddling, floating, sinking, however you want to envision it. And the chapter closes in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. That was God's salvation for Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And in chapter 2, we pick up with Jonah in the belly of the fish, and we get some insight into Jonah's mindset because we have Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. And maybe Jonah's prayer is supposed to be a model prayer. There's nothing in the prayer that I disagree with. It's theologically wrong. He doesn't ask for God in anything he shouldn't. And we should all be thankful when God saves us from stuff. But when you read the prayer in context with the story, I think we see that Jonah is still in that prayer, in the belly of that fish, still running from God. Jonah never repents in the prayer, even though we want him to. It's a very self-centered prayer. He actually takes a stab both the sailors that had just been in the boat with him and the Ninevites for worshiping false gods, forgetting that whole time that he was disobeying the real God. And Jonah even offers in his prayer to go back to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to the one true God, but that's not what God had asked him to do. He had told him to go to Nineveh. So even though I think Jonah's prayer is pretty bad, God still honors it. And in verse 10, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so last week we found Jonah freshly puked up onto the shore. God, for a second time, sends him to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go through all that storm fish stuff again, so he makes his trip to and through Nineveh, preaching what God had told him. And it was a simple message, verse 4 of chapter 3, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
This is a very simple, bare minimum message. It's just eight words in our language, five words in the original language. Simple message, but lo and behold, the people of Nineveh take notice. Starting with the king all the way down to the animals, they repent and they give up their evil and violent ways. And in verse 10 of Jonah 3, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So, at this point in the story, three chapters in, we have seen God use Jonah to bring an entire city to him. Despite the fact that Jonah ran from God, God still uses him to accomplish his purposes. He saves 120,000 people from destruction. And everything's really turned around in this story, right? Seems like everything's going really well for everybody. Jonah made it out of the storm. He made it out of the depths of the sea with the fish. God rescued him, and now Nineveh has escaped destruction. So stuff's going really good. So we start chapter 4 to see what Jonah thinks about it. And in verse 1, again, everything's going great. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And I think that this verse, the opening of chapter 4, is supposed to be a hard stop. It's supposed to get our attention. We're supposed to be like, oh, wait, what? Stuff's going good. Jonah, why are you still mad about it? This is definitely a big turn in the storyline, and it isn't how we as Americans tell stories. Because in our culture, we want all of our stories to have resolution. We want a pretty red bow on the end. We want to know that everything works out. And so if you grew up in the 90s like me, we had sitcoms like Full House and Family Matters, and it didn't matter what enormous dilemma was presented in the first five minutes of that 30-minute sitcom, after a couple commercial breaks, they're going to have it all figured out, right? I mean, like, it's all just going to work out. Like, everybody gets along by the end. Everybody learns the life lessons they're supposed to learn. Everything's great. We're all set up for the next week of a brand new story. And, like, today, that's how Hallmark and Lifetime, that's how they make movies, right? Everything's going to be great, right? That The big city girl gets burned out on her big city job, so she moves back to the country town, only to meet a ex-military guy who moved in to work at the stables and take care of his grandfather and he gets caught in at least one simple lie, but by the end of the story, they decide that they're in love and everything's going to work out all right, right? That's the way Lifetime, that's the way Hallmark tells stories. By the end, all the conflict is resolved. And I don't think Hallmark or Lifetime has the special effects budget to take on the project of telling the story of Jonah, all right? That, that wheel's going to be a little tricky on their budget. But if they did, Lifetime would end it at chapter 3. They like it when everybody's getting along at the end. But that's not the only way that our culture likes to end stories because I don't like Lifetime movies. Like, you couldn't pay me to watch one, all right? I, like most men, like movies where the conflict is resolved, but it's usually resolved through violence. Because in America, justice is irrelevant. Violent problems need violent solutions, and we like our bad guys dead. So I don't like Lifetime movies. I like movies like Desperado. Desperado, where Antonio Banderas is playing mariachi, right? And you realize he's a complicated character. He's not necessarily a hero, but he's more of a hero than all the villains in the story. And so you realize that mariachi is flawed. You know, he's got that sense of vigilante justice, but he's better than all these other bad guys 
And so the final scene, the way I like to get my resolution, is when Mariachi strolls in and they recognize that he's got a guitar case and they've heard rumors about this outlaw with a guitar case with guns inside. And he sets it down and then in slow motion, right, the fake guitar rises up and you see the guns inside and he systematically mows down every other bad guy that has been developed through the entire story, right? That's resolution. I like movies like that, like Indiana Jones, where a long fall to their imminent death is what the bad guy deserves, right? Movies like Boondock Saints, where at the end they actually slow it down when they show you the kill scene so that you can see the bullet in slow motion go through the cranium because that is resolution, right? That's resolution. I like movies where not only are the bad guys dead by the end of the movie, they have been dismembered as well and most of the time in slow-mo. That's Resolution. And I think at the beginning of chapter 4, we finally see the ending to the story that Jonah wanted, right? Because he didn't want Nineveh to end with repentance. He wanted revenge. He wanted revenge. And so finally, in chapter 4, verse 2, we get an honest prayer out of our boy Jonah. He prayed to the Lord in verse 2. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall By fleeing to Tarshish, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now finally, all the way at the end of this whole story, we find out why Jonah ran in the first place. Jonah didn't want to preach to Nineveh because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents and sending calamity. And Jonah wanted Nineveh to catch all the calamity, all of it. Jonah had ran from God's calling because Jonah hated Nineveh. You can call him a racist, a Jewish nationalist, whatever you want to call it, but the hatred he had was very intense. He had decided that he hated Nineveh and that they didn't deserve God's forgiveness. And to his credit, Jonah had his reasons, man. The people of Nineveh were awful, awful to the Israelites. They'd enslaved them in the past, made them pay tribute, and God, it had been prophesied that if if they didn't get their stuff together, that God was going to send Nineveh to do it again. So Jonah had a lot of reasons not to like Nineveh, and he had decided that the people of Nineveh were those people, those people. And no matter who you are, what race, nationality, religion, denomination, people group, you, like Jonah, have the potential to label people as those people. Those people that we have decided are not as deserving of God's love as we are. And there's this idea about the God of the Bible. They they sang the song they're going to close with it today called Same God. And people that want to push back on our faith would say, man, The God I see in the Bible is two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of war, a God of destruction and famine and genocide and justice and wrath. And then you see the God in the New Testament, and he seems to be a God of love and compassion and grace and mercy. And I just can't reconcile those two gods. The quickest way to do that is to just read your Bible. Because God is described like this the whole time. It's the same God. Jonah, way back here in the Old Testament, says that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And this phrase that Jonah uses is not unique to him. 
It's a way of describing God that is found all throughout the Old Testament. The commentary I looked at said, cited 11 different times in the Old Testament that we use is almost that exact same phrase to describe God. So how did Jonah know that God was gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity? How did Jonah know this? Well, because Jonah was an Israelite. And in the story of the Israelite people, God had rescued them from Egypt, split the Red Sea, provided manna in the desert. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. When he comes down with the tablets, they're still worshiping false gods, so Moses gets so mad he breaks the tablets, has to go back on top of the mountain to meet with God again. And when God shows up to people who just did all that stupidity, in Exodus 34, 6, this is the first time we see this phrase, it says, And God, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. Jonah knew God was all these things because Jonah had been all those things to his people, the Israelite people. And he was definitely thankful for the way that God had been with the Hebrews. He just didn't want it for those people. For those people. For Jonah, those people were the Ninevites. But we all have those people in our lives. And right now, we sit over here in the safety of East Texas and through the lens of Fox News and CNN and a million different journalists, we get to see probably World War III breaking out on the other side of the world. And we see Israel, who was attacked by Hamas, and now the U.S. has blamed Iran for some of that. We have unleashed airstrikes on Iran. Uh, Israel is now pushed back into the Gaza Strip. And you need to know that, like, this is still kind of the same dilemma. Israel versus not the Ninevites, not Assyria, but you need to know that parts of northern Iraq, southeast Turkey, northeast Syria, and northwest Iran, that's all part of what was Assyria. It's the same people as Jonah's day. And today, Israel is an American ally, and we are commanded to pray for Jerusalem. And I have a hard time hearing all the reports, one, because I'm not sure I believe anything that we're being told. And number two, I, man, I just don't have enough capacity in my heart for that kind of tragedy. Like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense. And so we can't, in this moment, let anyone on either side of this conflict become those people. We have to recognize that it is just as big of a tragedy for their hospitals to be bombed as it would be for ours. It's just as big of a tragedy for their families to be torn apart as it would be for our families to be torn apart. And it would be just as awful of an eternal catastrophe if those people spent eternity apart from God as it would be if you or I did it. But Jonah isn't hearing it. In verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's so upset he's willing to die over it, but then God asks a really big question in verse 4. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is Jonah justified in his anger? I don't, I don't think so. God has been good to him personally, right? Remember the whole storm, whale, all that stuff. And he's been good to his people, the Israelites. Why is he not okay with God being also good to those people? But Jonah doesn't give an answer. He doesn't tell God anything. He just does what I do. When I throw a little pity party, I isolate. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So we find Jonah all alone outside of the city that he helped save 
mad at God who had saved him and his people. I think we've all been there. Now, maybe you're not holding a grudge against an entire nationality, but you, like Jonah and like me, we don't get real happy when we see God do something in the lives of those people, whoever we've decided those people are. And we may not like to admit it, we aren't proud of it, but we all see ourselves in this story. And I know for me as a pastor, some of the most heartbreaking chapters of this church is when I've seen people come to know the grace of God in a completely revolutionary and new way. They begin to follow Jesus. They are so thankful for his redemption and his restoration and him rebuilding their lives. And they're so happy that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in love, that he relents from sending calamity. They're so thankful for that, of what God saved them, the areas of their life that they have seen God's grace and mercy. But then the sins of other people become apparent. And we have a tendency as humans to suddenly forget everything that we have done apart from God and all of the areas that God has shown us grace, and we refuse to show that grace to other people. And when I've seen that happen in this church, it's been one of the most heartbreaking things ever. And when I look back at the chapters of my life, the worst chapters are when I realize that I have done the exact same thing. I am Jonah. And so are you. So what does God do with people who refuse to show the grace that has been given them to those people? Does he kill us? No. Doesn't even give up on us. Instead, like a good father, God teaches us, and he taught Jonah with a house plan. Verse 6, told you it gets weird. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. God sends a plant, just a little small shade tree. And I have to admit, man, I've kind of got a soft spot in my heart for shade trees. All right, Like there's some trees on my property I've gone to a lot of lengths to like try to make sure they're they're healthy you know you cut off all the dead stuff and you groom and you prune I, I like saving shade trees I don't want to cut down shade trees so I get it shade tree is a great thing but I think this is more than just a plant think of this as Jonah's favorite material possession maybe it's your car your truck your wardrobe your electronics your hunting gear your pets your animals whatever the thing is in your life that brings you pleasure we all love those things, and Jonah loved his leafy plant. In verse 7, But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. I think it's wild that when God sends Jonah, he runs the opposite direction. Now, finally, he gives God this like second-chance, stubborn, obedient version of you know, doing what he said after God saves him. But when God sends literally anything else in the story, it reacts really quickly, right? The storm shows up on cue. The sailors do exactly what God wants them to do. The big fish shows up at just the right time. Nineveh repents. The leafy plant springs up overnight. And now this worm that God sends to destroy, that thing that Jonah truly loves, it shows up right on cue. And then God sends one more thing to try and teach our boy Jonah in verse 8. When the sun rose... God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. God has taken away his comfort. The worm has eaten his shade. The wind and the sun are beating on him. And in this teaching moment, God asked the same question as before, but this time, instead of making it about the city of Nineveh, he makes it about this plant. 
verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time Jonah actually gives God an answer. It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. If Jonah were alive today, he'd, he'd be on suicide watch, right? And why does God, why does he want to die now? Why does he want God to strike him down now? Because his plant died? I mean, that's kind of a dumb reason. But Jonah is furious about this plant. And he loved that little leafy plant, and he wanted to enjoy its shade. And here God had killed the plant, and Jonah was angry about it. I don't know what he's angry about. I mean, worms got to eat too, you know? He's so angry with God that he wants to die. When do we get angry with God? I think we get angry with God whenever we think we deserve something from God and we find him guilty for not giving it to us. I think we get angry with God whenever we think those people in our lives are unworthy and we're angry with God for giving them blessing when we think they don't deserve it. We get angry with God whenever God takes away some blessing from us, which we think he had no right to remove from our lives, whether that's a material possession our health, our money, our jobs, our loved ones, our dreams, our plans. When God takes those away, it can make us angry. And in all of those moments of anger, they're all based on self-righteousness. That's when you want to be right. God's wrong. You're right. And we think we deserve something or anything from God himself. And all of these things are true of Jonah here. He was angry with God. And now that we've finally gotten a response out of Jonah, in the last two verses of this whole book, God is going to teach Jonah a lesson, starting in verse 10. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also... All the animals. And just like that, the book of Jonah comes to an end. That's it. It ends with that question mark right there. And I'll admit, it's a pretty strange ending. And we see in this ending that the story of Jonah, it's really not about the nation of Nineveh. Because if it was a story primarily about Nineveh, it would have ended in chapter 3 when God showed mercy and they repented. But that wasn't the end. Why not? Because the story of Jonah... It's about God dealing with a man whose heart's very cold and hard. And Jonah wanted the city of Nineveh to be destroyed, and he did not want God to show compassion on those people. But Jonah did care for his little plant. And God is saying, Jonah, look at how ridiculous you are. You didn't cause this plant to grow, and yet you loved it and you wanted it to survive. And you didn't cause Nineveh to grow either, and yet you want those people to be destroyed. Nineveh, full of 120,000 people, all created in the image of likeness of God, all of whom God loves and cares for as much as he did Jonah. And he tells Jonah, these people don't have what I've given you. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know that the things they are doing are wrong. And you do, Jonah, because I taught you. These people don't know about me. They don't know about my ways. They don't even know that I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, that I relent in sending calamity. But Jonah, when given the opportunity to choose between 120,000 people and a plant, you picked the plant, dude. It's pretty jacked up. 
And that's the final question from God to Jonah in this story. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Jonah, should I not show the love I have shown you and your people to those people too? And that's how the story ends. Just kind of leaves us hanging. We don't get an answer from Jonah. We don't know what his response was. We don't know if God gets through to Jonah's heart. We don't know if he repented. We don't know if he learned his lesson. Why doesn't the story tell us? Because I don't think this story is primarily about Jonah either. A lot of people think it's about his love for other nations, but again, if it was, it ended at chapter 3. If, if you think it was just about God working in the heart of a prophet of Israel, it's not about that either because we don't even know if it took with Jonah. So what's the story about? The story of Jonah is about you and me. And the text leaves us hanging at the end of this story because it asks a question that we need to ask ourselves. What about you? What would you do if you were in Jonah's place? What does God see in your heart? Who do you hate? What do you love? What are your priorities? Do you love your car, your sports, making money more than the people that you're called to love? Or are you more concerned with how you look or the clothes that you have than you are with the welfare of your neighbors? Are you more concerned with your personal comfort and security than helping other people who God may not have blessed in all the ways that he has blessed you who might just need to hear the gospel? Do you get angry when you see God offer the same forgiveness that you are thankful he has offered you in another season of life? So here's the question that the text asks you. What are you concerned about? What is God concerned about? Do those things match? Because if not, you better take a look at your heart. Because God's concerns don't change. He's on a mission, and he wants to change your heart. It's God, and God is not as much concerned as about where you are or what you do as much as who you are, and he cares about who those people are too. He cares about all of us. And God told Jonah that the people in Nineveh could not tell their right hand from their left, that they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't even conceive that what they were doing was wrong because they didn't know God. But this isn't the only time in Scripture that we see that idea. Because about 600 years after the story of Jonah, another prophet, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, came along to the nation of Israel, and he referenced the story of Jonah a lot. And he didn't claim to be like Jonah because he was going to get swallowed by a fish but because he was going to allow himself to be thrown into the sea of a fake mock, illegal trial, tortured and mocked, betrayed by those closest to him. And then he was nailed to a cross and an instrument of torture and death so he could offer himself as the means of rescue and salvation for not just the people of Israel, but for all of those people too, and you and I are included in that. And while Jesus was being nailed to that cross by big, burly, hardened Roman soldiers that are willing to obey orders, not just to kill an innocent man, but to murder God himself, Jesus looks at them and then looks up to the same God that Jonah had prayed to. And in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And in every other world religion, there's this big tension between mercy and justice. We want God to show mercy for our sins, the ways we have disobeyed, the things we've done to hurt other people. We want God's mercy. But we also want God to be just, and we want to exert that justice on people who have done us wrong. Where the problem is, is we want God's mercy for us, and we want his justice for everybody else. And how does that work? 
Because if God's going to be a God of justice, then there's not going to get to be a lot of mercy, and there's just a lot of tension there, except when it comes to Jesus. Because God, through Jesus, showed mercy to all by taking justice upon himself. He took all the sin, all of Jonah's sin, all of our sin, past, present, and future. He took all of it and justified it by offering himself as the sacrifice. Jesus is the better Jonah. And he invites you to confess your mess to him, let him enter the storm of your life and calm it down. And he's willing to pay the penalty for your rebellion. We all run from God and God sent his son to chase us. But Jesus didn't end up in the belly of a big fish for three days. Instead, he entered a grave to pay the penalty for our sin. And he arose three days later, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and offering all of those people, us, the opportunity to know God. But that's not the end of it. And if you've made that decision, if you already understand what Jesus has done for you, great. But that's not the end of it. It's not. God wants you to recognize that he is a gracious, compassionate, loving God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, relents from sending calamity, and that he has displayed that in your life. But he doesn't want you to just stop there in that moment. When you feel like God has set you back on dry ground, he wants to give you a purpose and a future. He wants to use you in your brokenness and in your undeservedness to align your mission with the mission and heart of God and go all, tell all those people about him too. Because God didn't just love Jonah and the nation of Israel. He loved Nineveh too. And Jesus didn't just die on the cross and come back three days later just for you. He did it for all of those people. And he wants to use you to show his love to them. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you are the same God in the Old Testament as you are in the New, that you have always been a loving and gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, relents in sending calamity. And not only do I see this in Scripture, I have certainly seen it in my life, and I'm so grateful for it, but don't let me stop there. Don't let any of us stop there. We need to recognize that what you did for us and to us and through us all happened because of Jesus. You sent your son to show us mercy by allowing him to take all the justice upon himself. Lord. And because you've loved us that way, now you have set us up to go reach some more of those people. The people that are far from you, the people that are running from you, the people that we might try to believe don't deserve your love as much as we do, but that's a lie. So Lord, I pray we would remember Jonah, that we are him that we are just as undeserving of your love as anyone else has, but you'd love us enough to include us in what you're doing. We thank you for that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.